Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. This is our Friday show, which means I have the whole crew with me this week. We are all back together. Marianne Azevedo is here. Marianne, hello, and how is life? I am so happy to be here with you guys this week. I can't even express how much. It has been a week of ups, a week of downs, but we have all made it here mostly in one piece, and that includes Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hi, you were back home where you belong. How are you doing? I am so happy to be home. And as we were talking about before this recording, equity kind of feels like when you're in a plane or like enter a place of worship and you just like can't do anything else other than talk to each other. Yes. So <laughs> buckle in, everyone. We are in that kind of headspace today. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Is it a podcast? Is it group therapy? We'll never know. But we do have a lot to get to. So I'm going to jump right into the outline here just so everyone knows where we're going. We are going to try a new little format called Around the Horn News Updates. And it'll make sense very, very soon why we're doing that. We're going to riff through three deals of the week, Kindred, Coin DCX, and then the Chipotle Fund, which is a lot of fun, quite tasty, you might say. Then we're going to talk about Andreessen Horowitz, Start, and why they're taking on Y Combinator, pivot over to Netflix, talk about the end of the pandemic era, and also kind of make fun of that company just for a hot second. And then we're going to wrap up by talking about the maturing creator economy and why social audio is pivoting. Whew, it's going to be a lot, but we got this. So Natasha, first of all, we're going to do these updates about stories that we've talked about before. You're going to give us a quick hit. We're going to react to it and we're going to move right along. So kick off with SoftBank. Yeah, so obviously Mary Ann, even when out, was able to somehow toss me breaking news that SoftBank Latin America lost two top partners kind of a week after their early stage portion of that part of the firm spun out to do its own thing as well. So Paulo Pisoni, Shu Nada, two managing investment partners are going to start their own fund. I am very excited when they are no longer under the SoftBank helm and can sit down and tell me about their war stories. Yeah, I was pretty surprised by this. Uh, Shu in particular has been kind of the face of SoftBank in Latin America, especially in the Opportunity Fund as well. I feel like this is a bigger deal than we even realize, and it was pretty surprising to me. The thing that I'm curious about is just, will this lead to net more dollars being invested into Latin America? Because we have seen a deceleration in the last couple of quarters. So I'm curious what the overall impact will be. Marianne, next up there is more from the saga of Better. Yeah. Last week I wrote about this third round of layoffs was coming. I was hoping I would be wrong, but I wasn't. The digital online lender did conduct a third round of layoffs. This week, we don't know exactly how many people were impacted, believed to be over a thousand, anywhere from 1,200 to 1,500. The company would not confirm. It seems to be their new strategy is to not confirm the number of people being impacted. So I guess that (laughs) diminishes the amount of bad publicity they will get. Maybe that's what they're hoping. Anyway, this is their third round of layoffs in less than five months, which means the company has been pretty much cut in half in terms of number of employees. Jesus. I mean, two notes there. One, let's not forget about the severance scoop that you wrote a while ago, where a lot of employees are being offered severance checks. Mm -hmm. And that was maybe a prelude or something that they were doing before this. And then the other bit was a really interesting detail from the story where you noted that sources say that better real estate was among the impacted departments. And that was once where a lot of investment dollars were going. Mm -hmm. So not just layoffs, a shift in priorities all around. I'll just be really brief and say better.com is a brilliant example of why SPAC prognostications and their investor decks are never wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. And then the final little news item for friends around the horn section is that Elon Musk, his bid for Twitter continues. He filed with the SEC on Thursday morning saying that he is considering a tender offer and laid out all the different sources of funding, including a consortium of loans and kind of credit facilities worth, I think it was $13 billion. There was another big chunk of money that he's going to pull off as a margin loan. I've never seen a margin loan be worth more than $10 billion before, but if you're rich, hey, why not? And then also about $21 billion of his own money. It's a lot of capital, guys. The question is just, will he end up buying it or will Twitter defend itself? I think we're on chapter two of a very long, long story. And we're kind of jinxing ourselves right now by starting our show with following up on last week's story because I think we're just going to have an Elon section, but we're too scared to say it now. (laughs) The updates are going to keep coming. And just based on this news, and I'm sure a lot of the coverage we'll continue seeing on TC Plus, I've really liked it, just means that there's a lot of emotions in it, including our own owner also throwing a bid in for Twitter, reportedly. There was the idea that they might contribute to the capital, though I didn't see a mention of that in the filing. Anyways, Marianne, your thoughts? I mean, I feel like I'm watching a soap opera play out. It feels a little surreal. I mean, I don't know why we were all so surprised this is happening, but I was. So yeah, I just sit here with popcorn watching. Yeah, that's the correct emotion. We used to say, make tech fun again, bring back the drama. And now I just want to say, yeah, but not like this. <laughs> Anyways. Amen. Let's talk about deals of the week. We got some really fascinating ones this week, including Marianne, something from the realm of Open Door alums. What's going on with Kindred? Yeah, so this is probably the third story I think I've written in the past few months where a startup that was founded by people who used to work at Open Door has raised money. In this case, Justine Pilevsky and Tazneem Amina started a company called Kindred. And what they're trying to do, which I mean, how can I not be for this mission, is make travel dramatically more affordable. And what they've done is start a company that's essentially a home swapping network, members only, people can be invited. And There's no money exchanged between the people involved, which is an interesting concept. It's not like Airbnb. It's just like you literally swap nights. Say like you let someone come stay in your home for a week, then you bank seven nights and you get to go stay in another member's home for a week. So interesting. It is. It's pretty unique, I think. If for people who aren't familiar with Open Door, why does it make sense that these founders went from there to here? Yeah, I think that's a good question. One of these founders actually did make a stop in between at another company, another prop tech. But I don't know. I think one of the interesting also things about this particular deal is that these two women who started the company worked at Open Door, didn't really work together, did their own thing, and then both had this thing in mind, like, we want to start something around remote work because they felt like there was people wanting to travel more and travel more flexibly. Who introduced them? Open Door CEO and co-founder Eric Wu, who is also also now a backer in this company. I thought that was pretty fascinating. And so when you have a co-founder or CEO that's supportive of his former employees going off and starting their own things, that's pretty cool in my opinion. Speaks well of the corporate culture. Also, when I was listening to this explanation of what Kindred does, I was like, wait a minute, I've literally seen that movie. And so I just did some frantic Googling, which I know is poor form during the recording (laughs) process. But have you guys seen the classic holiday rom-com, The Holiday? Yeah, okay. A long time ago, I think. But I should. Yeah. Ah, well, it's medium bad. But (laughs) it is this exact concept. There's two people and they swap houses for the holidays to get away from things during Christmas. And (laughs) it made for a great 
Well, not a great film. Made for a, a, a kind of bad film. But the idea, I'm so happy to see what was kind of a plot turn into a company. I've never seen a business model derived from film before. Yeah, cool. and, and Kindred raised, by the way, I don't think I mentioned, $7.75 million. Andreessen led the round, but Bessemer Venture Partners participated, as well as a bunch of angel investors, other prop tech founders. Anyway, one to watch. Okay. At the risk of sounding optimistic, it's just refreshing to be surprised by a company doing something in a busy space like prop tech right i'm I'm like oh this is new i think actually new yeah so agreed airbnb meets the barter system we're going back to the middle ages all right next deal of the week is coin dcx an indian cryptocurrency exchange they are now valued at 2.15 billion on a post money basis they just snagged 135 million dollars which is so much money. They've now raised about a quarter billion all told. And this is an interesting story for two reasons. One, it's a lot of money, so we kind of care by that standard. But as we've been talking about on the Monday show for equity a lot, there has been some changes in India that have led to a dramatic decline in the amount of crypto trading. So if crypto volume was falling off a cliff, which it has been, you would think that investors wouldn't be shuffling more money into this company. My question, Natasha, is did the company raise the money before that and now is announcing it later on? Or Mm. is there such optimism in the market that the issues with the Indian payment system, I think it's called UPI, will get resolved that this is going to be okay. I don't know, but I'm curious as hell. Oh, me too. I I know as much as you do on timing, but I will say part of me when I was reading this story by Manish, I immediately thought a little bit about how the Indian market really just does need points of validation and things to point to to say, hey, investors are confident right now. Unlike Mm. in our immediate vicinities where there's so much confidence and hype, I feel like India actually does need a little bit more of like, we're taking this seriously. So a $2 billion valuation, it's hard to ignore. And it's like investors probably are making a statement. I don't think they're giving hundreds of millions just for like clout, but I think that maybe played a role in the timing. They knew that that leap would be made by every journalist out there timing wise. And if I was them and they raised far before the new rule came into play, I don't know if I would still make the statement the way I did. Yeah, it's a curious thing. I'll just throw in a couple more little notes before we move on. But I believe it was the first crypto unicorn in India, Mm -hmm. uh, CoinDCX. Wow. And also, I think they have around 10 million users. Now, 10 million users is a lot in the world of crypto, I think, just given that there's not like billions of crypto users. So it seems pretty material to me, but it doesn't feel cheap. And so I'm going to be really curious to kind of watch this one as we go along. Yeah, I have to admire that they're going forward like this in the face of a lot of challenges that exchanges here in the U.S. aren't dealing with. Oh, yeah. How do we feel about the fact that Coinbase is a backer? Okay, well, how do we feel that Coinbase Ventures, I think, put money into OpenSea and then just launched Coinbase NFT? Exactly. (laughs) The crypto world is so weird. In terms of like conflicts of interest, everyone kind of being bestie frenzy until they aren't. Marianne, I've never seen a market quite so, I think the polite word is integrated as a crypto market. That's Yeah, that's not the word I was thinking of, but it's much more audience friendly. Yeah, it's very <laughs> it's very interesting to, to What's see. What's the average age of our listeners? Can we say incestuous without getting in trouble or will we get muted <laughs> or bleeped? I, I guess don't we'll know. find out tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's do our last deal of the week. This is fun. All right, listen, the best cuisine in the world. Hands down, period. And I I say this, putting it ahead of Indian food, ahead of Thai food, ahead of Italian food, French cooking, American down south, Creole, the best food in the world is Mexican, period. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about Chipotle. (laughs) Someone somewhere is going to say that Chipotle isn't Mexican food. I am going to say that Indian food is the best cuisine out there. And that is exactly the why you said what you did. And I respect the hell out of that, Alex. Just to be clear, I respect that Chipotle is not super authentic Mexican food, but it is a Mexican food derivative. And I also like Tex-Mex. I also like authentic Mexican food. Give me some Oaxacan. Let's do it. Anyways. <laughs> the news with Chipotle this week, 
we don't get to talk about this often enough is that they raised a venture fund called Cultivate Next. It's powered entirely by Chipotle to start and it's 50 million. It's going to invest in tech companies from seed to series B. And it's planning to invest in everything from farming to supply chain, advanced robotics. It's corporate venture fund, but it's especially interesting because it's Chipotle and we've been talking about like restaurant issues, how hard it is to be a pandemic impacted business. So I thought it was interesting timing too. Yeah, I mean- I love it. I don't know. It was just too novel to not cover for TC. Like, this is not something that we could ignore. I'm fascinated by how this restaurant just has managed to keep going and still do pretty well. I mean, it's had some had some hits over the years, right? Like with food poisoning stuff, things like that. But a $50 million venture fund is, is a big deal. Well, so it's a lot of money in kind of historical venture terms. It's maybe also a lot of money for Chipotle, but it does kind of pale in, in contrast to these, you know, like $2 billion crypto funds that we hear about. But in this space where there's a lot less capital, the restaurant tech world, the ag tech world, it could have a really big impact. And also, you know what Chipotle has? Quite a lot of restaurants where they can try out stuff. And so if you take money from them, you can probably finagle, like, here's our carne asada robot. <laughs> You know, maybe you can install it at Chipotle. I don't know if that's a thing, but it should be. I'd buy one. Chipotle is totally like one of the more innovative companies out there right now. And I'm thinking about this because my friend did a presentation on it in college and he just walked through how this company like had grown to be the Chipotle we know it. And they just have made really interesting decisions. I don't want to get into the details of the presentation right now, but I think it's interesting to keep in mind that they've always kind of had a culture of innovation, working with startups. When I was at Crunchbase with all of you, I wrote about Chipotle's accelerator. And that wasn't getting like direct investments. It was kind of more like incubation and partnerships, but it's nice to see them be friendly Mm -hmm. with startups. Mm -hmm. Okay. We all know that Chipotle only has one real thing it has to do with this money, which is to improve its rice recipe. All right. (laughs) Now we're going to talk about a couple of big things. And the biggest thing today that Natasha and I were just talking about and talking about and talking about is all about Andreessen Horowitz, Y Combinator, and what we might call some rising competition between the two. Yes. Monday morning checked every box when it comes to fun, early stage startup content for us to talk about. Andreessen Horowitz announced this week that they had actually been quietly piloting a accelerator type program for early stage entrepreneurs. It's called Start, and I'll start with some details about (laughs) the firm. They haven't responded to comment yet, but I am hopeful that they may because one of their partners follows me on Twitter, so I think that it might happen. Anyways, Andreessen's new firm, Start, offers early stage founders up to $1 in venture capital. Ownership is not disclosed nor is how they choose what percent of that 1 million max that they will be giving founders. But it's remote first. It's accepting founders on a rolling basis. And it's powered by Andreessen Seed Fund, which was closed, I think, in August. And it was around 400 million. So lots of money, lots of focus to be remote international. And my immediate thought was, why does Andreessen Horowitz need its own Y Combinator? I mean, I think your story, your story answered that question. They want to get in earlier and earlier. And this is, I think, their way of doing it. I wrote about a company in Colombia that it's only two months old this week that raised money. I think it was like five and a half million in pre-seed funding. And they were a part of this program. Really? Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Did they give you any comment on how they felt about it? How it went? Kind of any context? You know, we didn't dig into it, but they seem pretty pumped about it. That's the thing is like Andreessen Horowitz, for better and for worse, has this really notorious reputation where founders are... I'm sure, are showing initial interest even without clear deal terms being publicized at this point because they want that stamp of approval. The real question, I think, is probably 10 years from now, if you're a startup that can go to either YC or Andreessen Horowitz, which one do you choose? It probably really depends. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to be a jerk here. If Andreessen Horowitz and Y Combinator are setting up the two blue chip, if you will, startup accelerators, which one's Stanford and which one's Harvard? Oh, man. 
I don't know enough about intercollege dynamics. I also to don't know. care about Harvard or Stanford. I know, I'm like, oh, I guess <laughs> uh, I've met some cool. smart people who have been to them, and I, I've also met Danny Crichton, who's been to both. <laughs> so you know that that's a knock. Oh, I miss him. I miss Danny yeah. too. We love Danny to be clear, but the occasional pot shot is a sign of love. <laughs> Here's my thought about this. At first, I was surprised that Andreessen was taking on another kind of like area of work, given that they're so broad. But then again, they just have a bajillion staff, so maybe they can do it. But here's the thing. If you're Andreessen and you, let's say, invest in, I don't know, Natasha, like what, four or five YC companies per batch, probably sure. in some capacity, somewhere in there, maybe more. You're paying the post YC price for those companies. And right. it's got to get really annoying to have someone constantly getting earlier to a company that is often just a couple of folks. I bet you're sitting there going, why am I paying a $20 million capped safe on this thing when I could have six months ago gotten in for a buck 50? So instead of letting YC build the index fund for early stage startups, build your own. All right, cool. I don't know if it's going to go well, but at least I get some logic behind it, if that makes sense. Definitely. I mean, I think that Andreessen going the route of bringing people in and then doing something that YC doesn't have, which is an insane amount of capital under management is smart during this time. Marion, what do you think about the timing of the announcement? Because it's during a time where there's like a little bit of mixed messages. Early stage startups are being kind of impacted, but late stage markets definitely are. Do you think there was anything to do with the timing? I know, didn't Sequoia debut an accelerator recently as well? So, yeah, ARC. Right. I have been seeing a lot more early stage deals with really prominent global investors leading or and participating at least. I mean, I think that's very strategic on their part uh, to Alex's point that these VCs are seeing that there's a lot of potential. They want to get in earlier and earlier. Yeah, it's actually, I do think it's a smart strategy. How does it play out for the startups? That I don't know. Like, is it really a good thing for them? I guess we'll see. Yeah, having the A16Z stamp on your startup is never a bad thing. But there's some signaling risk here, something that we've written about a lot on, on TC over the years, which is that if Andreessen puts a million dollars into your startup, and then you go out to raise your real seed round, let's say you want to raise four or five million, and Andreessen doesn't participate in it, huge red flag. And so essentially, Andreessen is setting these companies up in such a way when it's, it's kind of even more than you'd expect to be the arbiter or decider mm -hmm. of how they look when they go out to fundraise down the road. There's responsibility in that. YC doesn't have that same requirement given that they have 80 billion companies per batch. There's going to be fewer going point. through this Andreessen program. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a, a good point. point. Yeah, exactly. Because YC does that early stage, very early stage stuff, but Andreessen does all the way through. So that gives it a whole other dimension. I get excited when I see new accelerator programs and will always blog about them. But the part that I think I'm starting to now realize is more frustrating is it's really easy and cheap for these firms to dedicate a portion of their seed fund and start up an accelerator with resources that already exist. And so I feel like there is such a quality question that exists out there. And I wish we saw something that showed that they were going to prioritize diverse founders or people that historically would be overlooked by a Y Combinator, which has struggled with diversity a lot in its batches. So that's kind of my only cynical bit because I'm net positive about early stage companies getting more money yes. and trying new things, but I'm yep. not positive if we don't know exact details about it. Well, yes. a quick, quick point. <laughs> the company I wrote about was a female-led company in Colombia, so I did love that Andreessen is really putting a lot more money into LATAM and backing yes. female founders. They also led the yeah. Kindred raise, so I do like to see that at least they're not backing the same stereotypical founder that came out of Silicon Valley or whatever. Like They're really... Yeah. They're showing some diversity from what I can tell. So at least I really applaud that. Yeah. I wonder what is the kind of like standard founder these days. We used to always talk about Silicon Valley, but that really just meant San Francisco for yeah. a long time. 
much more so than I'm in Silicon Valley. And now it's not really San Francisco. SF is still bumping. I just went for the first time in a couple of years. It was great. I had a lovely time. I love that city. But, you know, I don't expect everyone to wear a, a fleece vest. So mm-hmm. to me, like, what does the median or mean founder? Yeah. Ooh, that's, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole other episode. Yeah. Grace, can you write that down so we don't forget? <laughs> I remember Sarah Kuntz said this to me once where she was like, I would often be asked what it's like to be an unconventional investor. And she was like, I'm not unconventional. I've done everything in my career that leads up to this. I'm just a black female. And so I think that yeah. really resonated with me and completely echoes your point, which is like, who's actually the median founder right now? Just because the ones that are getting funded aren't necessarily. Such a good point. Ones. But like, if you think, like, who's the median gamer? Everyone thinks it's, you know, a 17 year old boy in his parents' basement playing World of Warcraft. It's actually like a 40-year-old woman playing a game yes. on her phone. Okay, and we have people to talk forget about this. this. Well, not now because we're actually late and we have to talk about the pandemic, but we'll talk about that on another Wednesday show. <laughs> so make sure to tune into Equity on all your podcast feeds. All right, hard pivot. No good segue, but the pandemic is in retreat and we had a lot of news about this this week. We had some chaos on the public markets, a data point, if you will, about how the world is changing. Natasha, we have seen a number of things happen from Hopin and from Zoom and Peloton and so forth that have given us a vibe. Can you describe that vibe? For us. The vibe is that the pandemic bump has been slowly deflating over time. And it's been very apparent and honestly, unfortunately, maybe even useful for reporters to start seeing these companies tremble a little bit in how much and per share. And so, yeah, like you said, Zoom, Peloton, I mean, Hopin in the private markets had layoffs. And a lot of companies, even in the early stage, are starting to become more disciplined because their public market comparatives are getting corrected. Netflix was this week's news and the latest one to show its numbers. What was the top line aha moment? I'm going to just run through this really quick because it's kind of amazing. So Netflix reported earnings this week. It's Netflix. We pay attention. We don't bring it up on the show much because it's not super core to what we do. But in this case, the numbers were so shocking that they're worth talking about. Netflix reported in the first quarter that it actually lost 200,000 subscribers. Now, it still has 221 million point six down from 221 million point eight. So you might be thinking, oh, come on, that's barely a rounding error. Well, the company was expected to add several million subscribers and instead it shrank. And so the question is, when we think about a lot of companies that did have a great pandemic, and I know that's a strange phrase, but you know what I mean in business terms, did they see a demand pull forward or demand generation. And I think in the case of Netflix and other companies, they just kind of pulled forward a couple of years of demand early, looked great for a while, and now growth is slowing or turning negative. And they're still valuable companies, but they're being, Marianne, as we saw, kind of drop kicked by investors. Well, yeah. I mean, also one point with regard to Netflix, they lost 700,000 subscribers due to suspending service in Russia. Ooh, just one point. I mean, that doesn't make up the fact that they were expecting to gain millions, but it is significant, I think. I really have mixed feelings about this. I think that Netflix, what, 220 million subscribers is like insane to think about. And I feel like we've talked about this before. When you talk about startups, for example, and the pace of growth over time, I mean, Netflix has been around for how long now? I mean, well over a decade. How long can it sustain massive growth quarter over quarter, year over year? I mean, there's only so many people in the world. There's only so many people in the world who give a crap about Netflix, who are willing to pay for Netflix. Now it's cracking down on password sharing. I feel like we're all just expecting a little too much of Netflix, to be honest with you. <laughs> I did not expect that take, but I am so here for it. So, I am so here for it. <laughs> Marianne's making it sound like it's this 12-year-old company. You know, it's just going to middle school. You know, da, da, da. Netflix was founded in 1997. Oh, sh- was it that long ago? Yeah, oh. because they had the DVD business, which my parents still That's use. They're right. the last DVD subscribers that is in the world. Very You're right. So they're 25 years <laughs> yeah. old. My age. Yes. My age. Yes. yes. Wow. I know better. Clearly, I could run 
Uh, I just want to point out that it makes Marianne's point better though, right? Because she's saying that how can you expect them to keep growing forever? Well, they're 25. And the question then I think becomes what does growth look for them? They're talking about an ad supported model mm. with, some, with some subscription component to it, which sounds freaking awful. But mm-hmm. they're running up against what I call the Google problem which is that they had a great core business that made tons of money and gave them tons of growth. They failed to diversify from this much. Mm-hmm. And they're now being forced to juice more squeeze from the same lemon. <laughs> and that's why Google search is bad. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. I'll add too, I mean, consumer habits here and just the wars between all the different streaming platforms is so hard to ignore. I don't know if I ever expected it to make such a big dent to Netflix, but of course it did. I mean, Netflix had Bridgerton last quarter. I thought that would totally save it from at least a big amount, but it also pushed recording on Stranger Things. Other platforms got huge deals. And I feel like this is probably the reaction to a little bit of fragmentation on where people go to watch TV. I think that's a good point. And I think also one of the articles that we wrote, not me, but you know, one of our awesome consumer reporters wrote, they brought up the point that Netflix did start making its own original content or shows. Some of it was brilliant, like Ozark. I I love Ozark. But I think it indirectly admitted that quality also was not the best. So I feel like they were just like, oh, we're doing good. We're doing good on this original stuff. But then they got a little too comfortable with that and quality started to decline. And I think that's a good lesson for not just Netflix, but all these other streamers. Original content's great. I would rather see less of it with quality than more of it that's shit. So what Marianne is advocating for here is the HBO model. Can I just say that you're dead on? Because my spouse and I were sitting down to eat some food and we didn't want to talk to each other because we were tired. And so we just wanted to watch something mindless for 20 minutes while we consumed food to recharge. And so we put on the latest Netflix sensation. Is it cake? Oh, no. (laughs) And I like game shows. I like baking shows. I like that dude from SNL. But it turns out if you put all those together, you get a big pile of shit. (laughs) <laughs> and I think what they've done is they've just had like bingo or like Mad Libs at Netflix. They're like, well, let's have a baking show that's a competition with the SNL guy. Right. And then it turns out it's not cake. It's it's. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. I, I'm even thinking now, like I'm going back to the original point of like Netflix projected otherwise. And that's surprising to me yeah. that Netflix projected those numbers when it also knew it was mm-hmm. pulling out of Russia. Mm-hmm. It was doing a lot of, it was increasing prices. It was changing how it handles passwords. Like why would it not? preempt I mean, was that. It I just maybe overconfident, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm kind of like is there something you knew that we didn't? Mm-hmm. Is maybe giving them too much grace, but it's an interesting contrast between what actually happened. Yeah. And I think we're going to see this a lot. So the startup angle on all this is, you know, for startups that did see an enormous bump in the pandemic, was that a demand pull forward or was that indicative of more demand in general? I think that's something that we're going to learn a lot about this year as some companies run into what we might call a Netflix moment, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Speaking about the pandemic kind of being over, not lol, I don't know. I felt bad yesterday and took a COVID test. That's where I'm at. Oh, yeah. How are you feeling? I, you know, I didn't know that. Uh, Are you okay? I don't know. It was negative, so I just kind of went. That to doesn't bed. mean anything. Yeah, well, <laughs> not to not not to be that you feel worse, but it doesn't mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'm just fingers crossed. I had. What am I gonna do? Cancel my day? Like, if I cancel one day, it's gonna ruin my week. I know. So, like, no, here I am. Fingers crossed, though. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If I, if I have COVID, I will take some days off and I will just, you know, post from the couch. It's I have great, actually but. hoped I had COVID more than once so that I had an excuse to hole up in a room and not have to deal with anything or anybody. <laughs> anyway. No. I thought I thought I was the only one who'd had that thought and I hadn't shared it because I didn't want to get flamed as insensitive to people who have had COVID. Right. And like, to be clear, you know. Okay. I care, admit but, it. I admit it. Okay. I'm just going to confess. Last night, I was supposed to get a hold of my parents and I couldn't and I just didn't want to deal with phone tag. So I literally just put my phone on sleep mode at like 7 30 oh p.m and just left it there the rest of the night and it was amazing 
I might. I woke up. That's to a, a lot great of idea. You're like, I am so sorry. Oh, yeah, but then you <laughs> fall behind, and it's the worst. Anyways, one thing we are all doing to stay in touch is talk, and that's been big during the pandemic. But we have also seen some talking products lose some of their shine. And no, I'm not talking about Spotify's market cap in the Joe Rogan aftermath. <laughs> I'm talking about the decline of social audio. There was this boom in the early pandemic of us all getting together to chit chat about stuff, kind of like podcasts, but without producers, which is a terrible idea. And so, Natasha, we're seeing some changes to this space. What's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, Clubhouse, we always knew that it was growing too fast for its own good. I believe it hit a $4 billion valuation while still in invite-only mode. But yeah. someone fact-checked me on that because I'm not entirely sure. So we knew something had to change. And I think a lot of people thought that its expansion beyond invite-only internationally, beyond just like the tech insider crowd could do that. And this week we're seeing that it needs to be a lot more than that. So they've begun testing an in-room gaming feature. And, and it's, it's a pivot to gaming, which I don't think we've seen on this show for a very long time. I mean, consumer social to gaming definitely has both of the same feel of like whimsy, fun. We come here not for learning, but for joy. What do we think about it? Would you go to Clubhouse to game? Okay. First of all, I didn't go to Clubhouse for what it was originally made for. And I don't mean that to slam Clubhouse, but as I've said this before and I'll say it again, I mean, Clubhouse is for people who have a lot more time on their hands than people like me have to spend on it. So this in-room gaming feature, I mean, honestly, I read it just kind of like, what are they thinking? I mean, really? Maybe I'm wrong. But like, I can't imagine this taking off. Okay. In their defense, gaming is popular and people like to talk while they game discord. So what if it was discord, but public with built in games? So I'm sorry, but it's not that fun. Unfortunately, I would love for it to see that. So the initial launch, it's going to be a game called wild cards, which actually is just like more tailored networking. It's going to present a series of questions that are designed to spur conversation and help people get to know each other better. So not games in a more traditional traditional video game sense. sense. Yeah. And more like still believing in the idea of conversation and social audio. Alex, I like what you're saying though. So maybe this is a way for them to tease out our people willing to click things or look at something yeah. and engage what with it. What you described, Alex, sounds like a lot more viable idea than what I was reading about in this article, but I'm happy to be wrong. Well, speaking about being wrong, Spotify was going to put together a green room creator fund with a shift to live audio, and that seems to be going straight to the toilet. So yeah. I was very surprised to see that detail. On the show a while ago, we talked about how creator funds aren't perfect. Creators are getting smarter as they should and want to spread out their streams of revenue into different buckets. But to see something like Spotify, which has so much incentive to help creators win on its platform, close the fund down. I mean, obviously the immediate question is what's next and how are you going to do things to retain people here? Spotify is the example of how hard original content is. I think I read today that the Obamas are leaving the platform. They built some sort of service that like they didn't ship any podcasts. Someone should have told them that if you just record audio and then publish it, it's a podcast. I know. <laughs> Apparently they, they missed that memo. But I mean, this isn't the only thing that we're seeing kind of wind down what's going on, Mary. And we also heard about some stuff from Facebook that they're trying to also deprioritize some of their creator stuff, I think. Yeah, I mean, they had all these plans around social audio and Now that's all dying out with their focus on the metaverse and seeing that, you know, seeing all the other platforms that were focused on social audio stuff, not really doing super great. It's not as much of a shock. I mean, I was disappointed in Spotify's decision with regards to creators, but this Facebook is 
losing interest in podcasting plans, not as much of a surprise. So the question then becomes, in 2022, after 2021 being the year of the creator, when there were so many creator startups, ladies and gentlemen, are we done with that now? Or is creators now just a thing that exists kind of ambiently throughout the startup ecosystem? Oh man, with creators learning a lot more and being more realistic about how much being a creator can change your life or replace your day job, we're going to see more of these tools start to shift and creators as a result are going to be less experimental with which platforms they go to. So I kind of see this negative cycle happening, which is like platforms are going to start shuttering or tweaking their creator programs. Creators are then going to be more scared to try out a new platform and therefore either go to the OGs or not do it at all. And I'm not going to call the end of the creator economy right now, but I am going to call that there is that reckoning realization, as we saw with a lot of people year one, announcing their Substack numbers, posting screenshots of how much they made from the TikTok fund. There's a lot of like reality checks that are happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we haven't all quit to go make our own Substacks because <laughs> we probably would make less money and that would be bad. <laughs> we have to wrap it up there. So a couple notes from us to you, our friends who are listening. We do have a Twitter space with Sophie, one of our columnists, all about immigration. That is going to be on April 26th at 2.30 Pacific, 5.30 Eastern. We will have a link to that in the show notes. We will also have a couple of links to our creator economy work that we've discussed a little bit today, but just in general, if you want more of a primer on that conversation, because we didn't have an hour to go into the history of the ins and outs of the creator economy. But yeah, gosh, what a week, guys. We had to cut a lot to get even this stuff down to this amount of time, which is indicative of the fact that we're busy in a good way. I appreciate you all. Always fun to talk about the news. Yeah, this was fun. Best hour yeah. I've had all week. Should we just keep recording? What's going to happen if we stop? <laughs> I have a meeting in seven minutes. I have a meeting in 37 minutes. I also have a meeting in uh, 97 minutes. So I, I don't... Let's <laughs> go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marianne, Natasha, as always, an absolute pleasure. Grace, thanks for getting us together. And everyone, we're back Monday morning. Bye. 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 